What up, HyperChange? Welcome to another episode. Today, we are launching the Hyper Scheme, a new chill podcast where I just tell y'all what, you know, what's up, what I've been thinking about, what kind of economic news I'm reading, what companies, what startups I'm following. Uh, you know, I'm always trying to document my investing journey and just create the content that I feel like is missing and is sort of different. And so I've been struggling with that recently of like, am I following Tesla enough? Am I, you know, am I coming out with this video or that video? Um, and I just feel like I have so many little ideas that I'm not getting out and across on the internet. So I wanted to make this podcast to just open up with all the schemes I have. And so, um, and also like take questions from Patreons. I'm going to allow all of my Patreons to submit questions um, so that, and I'll answer all those in this show. And then each show will kind of have its own broader topic um, as well. And actually for this one, I don't even know. It's going to be Tesla FSD version nine. It's going to be the Robinhood IPO. It's going to be inflation. I don't know. You probably know by the title, but anyway, let's get right into it. So the first thing I wanted to cover um, is US inflation. And I think this is um, a topic that I've been thinking about more and more in the economic system of what's going on with the, the rapid money printing that sort of was okay during COVID, when are we going to start to see the effects of that? Because as things are reopening, um, just anecdotally, I've been seeing a lot of interesting stuff. Like in New York City, restaurants are having a hard time staying open because they're not able to find enough workers. And I think this is a, a sort of a systematic issue that's going on across the U.S. where people just don't want to go back to work. The unemployment benefits are super high. They got used to a certain lifestyle. Maybe they move back into home or they just don't want to enter the workforce. Um, and I think this to me is the start of a massive cycle of inflation that's about to hit because what I ha see, you know, maybe Maybe it's just in, in the food service industry to start, but I also think it's Amazon workers. I think it's pretty much everywhere. The big sort of economic way I see this playing out is that wages will have to start increasing. They're just going to have to start paying people more to get back to work. And then the cost of everything will therefore sort of trickle down and rise as a result. And I think this is going to set off and already has begun setting off a next sort of cyclical wave of mega inflation. Now, I'm not a macroeconomist. This isn't something I think about a lot, but this is sort of a once in, you know, I've never really thought about inflation, but I think now there's been such a weird throw in with COVID. And and the fact that you know universal basic income governments printing money was something that was sort of a really fringe idea and something that was crazy and has now become the status quo. This has become normal um, and it's become accepted. And I think once you press that button and print money of trillion dollar package of this, 1600 stimulus here, like you just won't stop. Y you know, really simply, if you think about the value of the US dollar is like amount of dollars in circulation, that's like the share count of the US dollar, right? And then the economic value of, of you know humanity or, or the US is increasing at this certain rate of productivity times population growth. It looks like the, to me, the pace of dollar printing is gonna far outweigh our productivity growth and therefore the purchasing power of dollars is going to erode and we basically have sort of an inflation spiral that is is being accelerated by the rate of dilution of, of central banks and the government and so I think that as dilution accelerates and as we print more it's going to you know speed up faster than productivity and we're going to have this massive inflation cycle that's going to hit a runaway and I think what's going to happen is it, it, you've already given people so much money and capital they're going to keep fixing this problem by printing more and more money and then we've seen what happens in third world countries where like Zimbabwe you know the cur currency inflates out of control. This is the history of almost every fiat currency. And so I frankly am in this weird, I don't know, maybe I'm a conspiracy theorist for this, but thinking that the U.S. is about to hit a next mega inflation cycle. And that's why I'm thinking about ways to preserve and store my wealth. It's in Bitcoin. It's in Ethereum. It's in these digital crypto assets um, and things where the supply is not controlled by, you know, the Federal Reserve and they can print as much as they want. And so even just this, you know, law of scarcity is making a lot of assets attractive. And that's why I think collectibles are rising. Um, and to me, this was the, the start of the inflation was the crypto boom was, uh, you know, Pokemon cards, was magic cards 
cards with literally any sort of collectible comic book or sneakers or streetwear is all soaring in value because I think it's what I call the awakening. People are realizing that inflation is hitting, that the dollar isn't the best way to store your wealth, and there's different places to do it. I think equity prices soaring, Shopify, Tesla stock, Amazon, you know, uh, Facebook, Zoom. The bull run that we've seen in innovation and stocks in the public markets is also a reaction to, wait, I don't want to have my wealth in fiat currency. I'd rather have it in the equity of these technology companies building the future. So another way, way I think this is going to play out is real estate. I am, I, okay, I don't own any real estate because... Um, I don't know. I just think my IRR is better different places. Like I've been seeing, you know, I'd rather write a check to a really dope startup than buy a piece of property because I just think the returns are better and that's a little more fun. But I'm, I, I, I'm just saying that because I'm like, I'm having so much FOMO uh, about not being in real estate because I think real estate is structurally, this is going to be like the best time in multi hundreds of years to buy real estate because every single real estate right now, if you can get locked into a fixed rate mortgage at a super low interest rate, when fiat, you know, you're basically betting on a structural mispricing that the entire mortgage industry has because they're not accepting the rate of inflation that's about to hit. So if you believe that inflation, like I do, is about to accelerate, um, and here's this chart showing that inflation is kind of accelerating, um, then you, I think you believe that if you're locking in that mortgage rate, you know your, your, your mortgage payments, which is locked in this, this rate for 30 years as ex inflation accelerates, the real cost of your mortgage over time is sort of going to go down, if that makes sense, because it's priced in fiat, which is getting accelerated dilution. So I think if you were going to buy property and you can lock in a fiat price now and in a fiat, like I, what I'm trying to say is I think fixed rate mortgages are going to totally go away. I think it's going to go back to fully adjustable rates because there's going to be so much volatility in the future of the interest rate outlook. And um, my bet is that the expectation of volatility in interest rates, you know, is going to go way up. And so I don't know if this is making any sense, but um, I, th and I, and I don't know how this impacts a lot of different companies, you know, and I think a, a way we're going to see impact equities and technology startups is which who has the power to raise prices because that's really what it comes down to. If it's inflation um, and your product is amazing and your product can sort of tread water um, in terms of value, but the dollars or values going down, then your product should be increasing in price. Tesla's been kind of increasing their prices. Look at what Tesla does with FSD, increasing prices. So um, I think that's one angle. And then the flip side of that is how much of this tech can come in as deflation. You know, um, think about software instead of lawyers, like what with what Carter is doing, dropping the cost of, of all this different stuff. You know, that's what technology does. What can I buy on Amazon versus at my hardware store that's cheaper? Um, you know, I, I think in many different ways, software eating the world creates a business model where you can get a better product or service to you that costs less to give to you. So this is a massive deflationary pressure on the entire world. And it's sort of heading towards this, you know, the utopia theory of like, maybe we can produce enough and have a surplus because, you know, we have enough technology to give everybody what they need. And the way that would manifest in financial markets would be this crazy deflation where everything is super cheap because we have a, you know, a bounty of it. And so I don't know, those are the two forces I see at the macroeconomic front of things right now is just this inertia of public policy to keep printing more money will continue and accelerate and it will manifest this crazy accelerating dilution spiral. And that's why I have zero of my money in fiat uh, currency right now. It's all an equity of technology companies or cryptocurrencies. Um, and real estate would be the third bucket that I'm not in, but I would be because I think those are the things that really store value over time. And the sort of first principle reason that gets me to that is like, you know, I want like, like, you know, value over time, right? That's what money is. You want to pr preserve your like economic inertia or momentum or economic energy in some system. What's the best way to preserve it? Is it Bitcoin? Is it Ethereum? Um, is it is it real estate? And I just think it's it's the awakening and people are all rethinking this. And that's why as much as it's an equity price bubble, we've never seen the 100 PE ratio. We've never seen a 50 times price sales on a SaaS company. Um, is that ridiculous? Or is that finally an acknowledgement of the accelerating inflation rate and the fact that equity and technology companies will be 
be the best thing to preserve wealth over time um, because you're almost in a, it seems like you're offensively investing in something at 100 times PE ratio, but it's almost defensive because it's the only thing that won't get diluted at this crazy rate. And so I don't know if there's any making sense. I'm getting way off tangent with the first topic, but um, that is what it is. So moving to the next thing, I mean, Robinhood IPO, I, you know, this is, this is really interesting. So let's pull this up right now. So this is the Robinhood S1 filing, which I'll put a link to in below. This is, the, you know, if you're if you're going to be doing financial research, this is the thing to look at. This is the document, hundreds of pages that Robinhood has to file with the SEC to tell you everything that's what's up with their business before their IPO. So Robinhood, you know, the stock investing app for free is getting ready to uh, let you invest in it. Like it's going to have its own IPO. Um, and Robinhood was previously valued about 10 or 15 billion in the private markets. The rumor is when this IPO hits, they could be worth 40 to 50 billion. I think that's what it's going to uh, hit when they hit that the, when it actually starts trading. And so this is going to be crazy. This is set to be one of the biggest IPOs of the year. Really, really interesting, especially because of their business model. Now, Robinhood has gotten a lot of heat in the past. And I've also said, you know, I've been super critical of Robinhood. I've been like, if you are not paying for trades, you actually are the product. You know, it's like Facebook, like you're the product. They're selling your data. Well, Robinhood's not selling your data. They're selling your order flow to hedge funds. And this is something that Robinhood has been fined for multiple times for essentially selling your order flow, not in a fair way. And you can look into that yourself. I don't want to say anything and get in trouble. But my point is, is I've never been a Robinhood customer and wouldn't use their service because, um, and if you've read the book Flash Boys, that explains all of this. I cannot recommend that book enough. But essentially, they sell your um, right to execute your order to a massive hedge fund. So they're like, oh, Gally, you want to buy Tesla stock. Okay, well, we're not going to actually buy Tesla stock with that money. We're going to send that. This company called Citadel or some massive hedge fund pays us for the right to send them Gally's order. Why would they be paying to send Gally's order? Why are they paying for my order, right? Because the right to execute my order order. I said, I want to buy Tesla, you know, and it's trading at 692. They're going to execute it. So I buy it at 69,250. They're going to buy it for 69,2. They're going to sell it to me for 69,250. And bam, they make a 50 cents. So I don't know if that makes sense, but these little micro transactions as they execute the orders. And this is technically, they're saying they do it fairly and are acting fairly on behalf of customers, but key bono makes no sense. Why are the smart, smartest hedge funds in the world paying for your order flow repeatedly doing this nonstop paying Robinhood? because they're making money on it. It's, there's no way that the smartest hedge funds in the world would be, would be buying your order flow for hundreds of millions of dollars and not profiting off of it. So that's exactly what they're doing. So you are the customer. And I just hate that ethos. Like the entire way that Robinhood works, like, like if you're going to do that as a company and say that we're here giving, empowering the little guy, which in some ways they are because they let you trade for free. You're also to me like stealing from the poor, giving to the rich by letting the, the rich hedge fund people execute the poor people's order flow and milk them for little cents on the dollar and you're literally getting fined for this like that's a horrible corp corporate ethos and so I don't like that. But on the other hand, they've gotten millions of people into investing. I mean, look at these stats, 18 million users, 17.7 million uh, active monthly users, $81 billion under management. Uh, 50 plus percent of these people are new investors. They are democratizing finance in a lot of ways. They have set the standard for commission-free trading, which I think unlocks millions of people to come into this ecosystem. That's amazing things. They're funded by Mark Andreessen and Andreessen Horowitz, who I think is a visionary VC that is going to take this all the way. Like They have all the makings of being an incredible company, but there's something about this business model that Rob's seen the way. And it's not just the fact that they're selling your order flow and all of this stuff, um, but it's also that, for instance, for uh, margin, they let you get margin, but they price it as a SaaS service, which I think incentivizes people who aren't you know, sure about margin, which is essentially taking on debt. Margin is just a fancy word for going into debt to buy stocks, something you should never do. Like, I don't know. I consider myself a pretty good, like I'm, I've been in the stock game for 12 years and I never would ever do margin because I, my simple rule is like, I never get into debt. Why would I go into debt? You know, I, it just, I think it's a horrible, 
I just think it's a really toxic mentality that we've normalized margin. We've normalized debt. Um, and I just think it's, you don't need it. Um, and so Robinhood is normalizing margin and debt for millions of inexperienced investors who don't know what they're doing. And I think it's going to cause a lot of loss and already has. And I just think that's not the responsible thing to do, especially by giving people access to debt with a sunk cost fallacy of paying $5 a month for access to that debt, forcing you to use it with this weird psycho. Like, I just don't like that. So but Bobby, this is the other but the other thing is like I keep going back and forth because it's like are they doing all of this bad and sort of greasiness to give you the option to trade for free which is a beautiful thing of reducing friction to participate in financial markets I don't know so I'm sort of a toss up here um to, and also full disclosure like I'm an advisor to a company called Public which I think is amazing. And that is the app I use, which is very similar to Robinhood. But for instance, they don't have options. They don't allow day trading. It's all about long-term investing. It's a social network where you can share your investments, talk about them. And I, I mean, I'm not getting, I, I feel like I'm plugging them. I'm, I shouldn't, I don't have to, but I'm, I, you know, I'm biased because I'm an advisor to them, but I like that ethos a lot more. Like it just feels like, um, you know, a better way to educate people. And, but, but at the same time, like I think Robinhood and public and cash app, for instance, um, and even things like rainbow app and Coinbase, like these are all the winners of the future. These are the companies building the next banking system. And this is where all of the alpha is in that industry in the future. They are capturing the millennials, the Gen Z's. These are going to be the vanguards, the fidelities of our generation, but bigger, but better. And it's sort of a race in terms of pace of innovation to see you can keep these customers to see you can keep that flow of AUM going. You know, now you have all these customers, Maybe they have a cash app. Maybe they have a, a rainbow wallet and they're putting money in crypto. You know, how do you uh, keep the flow of their capital coming in, going to your brokerage app or your financial uh, product? That is going to be really interesting. Um, and that's why I love following the space because as much as it seems like, oh, Tesla is doing good for the world and they're changing the world for the better by just literally building clean energy. That's incredible. Um, I think a lot of inequity in the world comes from the financial system and people not having access to it, not being educated about it, not having the tools to be able to access the beautiful sort of miracles in capitalism, which are, you know, equity prices and make an amazing return by investing in these amazing technologies that you use every day. Like, I think everybody should have that opportunity. And it's an amazing way to democratize opportunity by opening up the financial markets. And that's why I spend a lot of time thinking about how technology can do that. And when you think about Robinhood and Public and Cash App, these are the technology companies that are democratizing uh, the financial system for the next century. And so I love this, the social mission of it, even if it's not super apparent. And so, but I think it th there is one here. Um, but anyway, let's go to the Robinhood financials here. I'm getting way sidetracked but we can scroll through this as you can see this is like sec this thing is yeah so anyway here's robin hood's financials for the year ending 2019 they did 277 million in revenue uh 278 million um 2020 they did 958 million so like um you know like more more than a triple like Robinhood's making a billion dollars in revenue this year, growing insanely quickly. And then you look at the the March numbers here. We're looking at 522 million in a quarter over 127 million in Q1 2020. So Robinhood's growth is out of control, to put it lightly. Three, 278 million to almost a billion in 2020, and then 500 million in just the first quarter of Q1. I think it's safe to assume, you know, maybe it's because of the bull market, maybe because people are hyped on crypto, maybe it's a little bit, you know, let's not assume that this is going to grow, this level of growth will continue, but I think it's a safe to assume they can at least hold that 500 million number on average for the next couple of quarters. We're looking at at least 2 billion in revenue probably in 2021. So now you're like, okay, Robinhood is this crazy company with 18 million users that's growing like an insane amount that we're going to, that's going to have 2 billion in revenue and we're going to, the public market wants to buy it at 40 or 50 billion. Is that fair? Um, 
I actually think that's a pretty reasonable multiple. I think, you know, you look at some of the the opportunity of this this global banking thing that I was talking about to, to truly bank the next generation. I think that's multi hundreds of billions. I think Robinhood's the leader and therefore them being valued, uh, you know, with big shoes to fill with the expectation that they will continue to grow and continue to ramp monetization significantly. I think that's an accurate expectation. And therefore, this 40 to $50 billion valuation makes a lot of sense. And so, um, I don't know, this is going to be really, really exciting because Robinhood has got a lot of controversy um, because of the stuff I was talking about earlier, the order flow stuff. And so it'll be interesting to see whether, and, and they're giving a lot of their shares to their early users. So it'll be interesting to see like, okay, you know, do people not care? Is it that they're giving back to their users? You know, I, I'm just so curious to see if the internet zeitgeist gives them credit for being Robin Hood and helping every the little guy or for being the evil Robin Hood that, you know, was uh, Vic, like the whole GameStop drama, uh, you know, is getting fined by the SEC. Which narrative is going to take hold? I'm fascinating but this is the biggest ipo to watch you got to keep looking out for it now the financials are out so we're going to keep following this um story um i don't know i'm just going to keep watching it because i think it's really dope okay the boring company this is another thing i wanted to highlight because i think the boring company um it, and this isn't really huge news but they recently unveiled the Las lvcc las vegas convention center loop so this is something that was recently operational and you think about you know, Elon Musk and Tesla going from this really weird out there project of being in traffic and trying to come up with that way to solve traffic with a tunneling company. And then you see it actually happen. There's actually a loop open. They've done this. They built it in a year. It was $47 million, three stops, 1.7 miles of tunnel with their own tunneling machine. Like they literally did it. And so when I think about watching these crazy ideas and technologies and just startups in general, screw the fact that it's Elon Musk's company. Let's just think about it. If it were a normal startup, you know, it's one thing for them to unveil a flashy prototype and have a party, which they all did. It's another thing for them to actually make a tunnel that people could ride in. And so that has occurred. And I think the boring company needs to be taken seriously. And it gets me so pumped. Like, I hate traffic. Like, how does nobody else hate traffic? And I also think, like, you know, on other reasons, we've all seen the UFO news about aliens coming down. And I'm like, okay, like, why are the aliens coming down now? I got to think traffic is a huge reason. Like, we literally have, like, pre-Rona at least. Think about this. We all have our buildings. We leave our buildings at the same time every single day. Like, our roads are empty all night for 12 or 15 hours. We wake up. We all leave at the exact same time of day. And then that's what causes congestion on this one little tiny road. Like, the, the it's just going to seem so dumb in the future that we didn't, like, stagger work things, that we didn't, you know, change the schedules to sort of even it out. I don't know. My point being, though, is so much time and energy is wasted in traffic in general, and it's so inefficient. And I only see this increasing, like, exponentially. Like, you go to any city, Seattle, New York, LA, now that things are reopening, traffic is back. It's worse than ever. It sucks. It's soul-crushing. And I think the U.S. government doesn't have the chops to fix this. The U.S. government is moving so slow. It's so bureaucratic. They're in the lobbyists are in their pocket funding them with these Garbo projects that cost tens of billions of dollars that take decades to complete. That There's no incentive to actually build new technology in. It sucks. And I think the U.S.'s infrastructure is crumbling. Go to China. They're putting us in the dust. And the boring company is one of our only options. Instead of building some SaaS product that nobody cares about to like schedule your calendar appointments more quickly, this is actually a company building real technology. Not only is it building real technology, but sustainable technology, electric cars and tunnels, tunneling machines that are electric, you know, literally reinventing the tunneling industry. Um, and, and I don't know, this, it, this hits home for me because in high school, um, I interned at my uncle or my grandpa's tunneling company. Like my family had a tunneling company called Sely, which is an Italian, Nonno Carlo, shout out, Zio Ramo. Um, and I worked 
me and my cousin Luca worked in the uh, Roman subway for a summer helping with this extension that was the project. And it was so dope. And we saw this boring company machine. And uh, I just remember being in the tunnels and them having like, you know, ventilate all the air out because they're using fossil fuels. So, and it just, I don't know, being in that industry and seeing it, like it's so slow, it's so bureaucratic, it's so old school. So to see someone like Elon Musk come in, electrify that, you know, ex essentially accelerate the pace of innovation in the tunneling industry by like a thousand X because nobody was innovating. That's the reason why we're not having these amazing public infrastructure projects. Nobody's reinventing that tunneling technology to make it more, more cost competitive, to make it cheaper, to make it faster for consumers. So now Elon Musk is doing all of that, not changing the game too much, but just having smart engineers work on this problem. And that's why I think the Boring Company is so, so exciting to me because you think about things that can actually move the needle for a lot of humans on the planet and just make our lives better, getting rid of traffic and allowing us to get around cities faster and easier and more sustainably. Like Tesla, us all having autonomous Teslas isn't gonna be enough. We're living in 3D structures, but our transportation structures are 2D, right? This is the first principles reason for the boring company. We don't want to go up with flying cars. We want to go down with tunnels. So yes, the future is not going to look like Jetsons, but it's going to look weirdly dystopian and that we're all in these tunnels underground by hundreds of feet shooting through in, in Teslas. And that's already happening. And so anyway, I just want to bring that up. Okay. FSD version 9, I'm going to start blasting through this news because, man, I'm getting too excited and just ranting. But um, FSD version 9, Elon's latest tweet, yes, updated UI coming with FSD wide release. All cars will have F with FSD computer will have new mind of car view. All 3 and Y can be upgraded to have FSD computer. And so I think this is super interesting, this new mind of car view, because as an FSD beta customer, I've been seeing this FSD beta thing on the screen. Like I see what the car sees and that makes me confident about where we're going, about what it's doing, about what it sees on the road. And I think this is potentially the biggest challenge of completing, actually, no, it's not the biggest challenge at all. It's actually getting the car to work. But in terms of consumer adoption, I think something that hasn't got a lot of thought or people aren't realizing is like how much trust you're putting in the car. And all of that trust relies on the visual visualization that I'm seeing on the screen, right? So, um, seeing what Tesla is going to do with that is going to be incredible. And I think what's what's leading up the breadcrumbs that I'm getting to here is that Tesla is about to unveil a major overhaul of FSD. Like we're going to see them roll out subscription pricing. We're going to see this V9 go out, new UI. It's going to go to vision-based only. It's going to have a huge improvement. They've been working on this. It's been two weeks away for four months. I mean, this is, I, I just get the feeling. And I know everyone's like, oh my God, Elon, when's it going to come out? It's like, bro, chill. It's going to come out. It's going to be amazing. Um, and I just think there's a huge, huge improvement brewing here. And is it going to be any day? Is it going to be another six months from now? Who knows? But I, I just think something is cooking with Elon and FSD. And I can't wait to use it because I've been using v V8.2 and it's all right. But I would say there's still, you know, one or two interventions every 30 minutes of inner city urban driving. I want to see this next plateau. I want to see this next level and just feel it myself as a consumer. And I'm making so many videos about it. So anyway, stay tuned for that. Okay too good to go. Shout out to my homie Zach for showing me this app because I, and I haven't actually used it yet. Like I've checked out the app, but I want to give you guys feedback and I just have to mention it. Like I haven't even had time to make a video about it, but I just have to mention it because this to me is like such a genius alignment of incentive. It's the anti-food waste app. So basically you open this app and it shows you restaurants that are selling, you know, food that they would have had to throw out or that's about to go bad for the day or that, you know, X, Y, and Z reason they want to get rid of and you can buy it at a discount. And so to me, this is such a win-win because the food problem, the food system is totally crushing, you know, our, the planet right now. How do we get more sustainable? How do we maximize our resources? How do we, you know, um, I don't know, create a more efficient economy where food waste isn't this massive problem. And 
I think this app could actually solve it. And not only does it solve this incredible problem that we're all facing, but restaurants have a new way to make money because that thing they would have thrown out, now they sell for five bucks instead of zero. Now I get these bagels, uh, you know, a dozen bagels for five bucks because they're on sale. And so I got a deal. I feel like I won. The restaurant got monetization that wouldn't have had and the planet doesn't have waste. I think this, the alignment of incentives here is incredible. I'm obsessed with this startup, even though I haven't even used it and I haven't been in touch with them. I just think the idea of this is dope and the fact that it's blowing up and my friend told me about it just makes me super, super excited. And there's not many companies that I see that like get me pumped from like a really move the needle perspective of, of hyper change and hyper changing an industry. But to me, this feels like they might be onto a really big product market fit that could have a huge impact on a huge industry. And I love it. And I just wanted to support this, this thing and say, y'all should check it out and let me know if you've used it. Okay. Now we got to go to Patreon questions. Um, thank you guys so much for submitting these, by the way. Um, okay. Medusa lives, lives, lemonade stock. Okay. So lemonade stock, you know, I don't really have a strong opinion on because I'm not an expert in the insurance industry. I like to really just stay in my lane, frankly. Um, although I am a lemonade customer for rental insurance, I guess. So that's dope. Um, I think there's a huge opportunity to reinvent. Um, you know, every uh, insurance company spends gazillions of dollars on advertising. You're basically paying that in premiums. I think there's a new way to get customers via the internet, via word of mouth, pass on savings by this new streamlined model, basically going direct to consumer. I think Lemonade's in the position to uh, tackle that opportunity. On the flip side, is insurance going in-house to these companies with the data advantage like Tesla, where now all of a sudden the auto insurance uh, industry isn't run by third parties, but it's run by the OEMs themselves who are vertically integrating. That's a huge threat. So I don't know. And I assume Lemonade's massively priced. There's a ton of growth priced in. Am I going to have enough alpha and insight to be able to scheme on where this is going and whether, I don't know, I just am not confident in it. So that's my thoughts on Lemonade, but it is a disruptor in that industry and I think has a lot of potential. When do I think Tesla will turn to the $850 price? I have no idea. Um, I think, you know, you can't predict what a stock is going to do in the short or long run. Like it's going to go wild and be volatile, especially Tesla. The only thing that you can predict or control or sort of you know, keep in your purview with the company is your research of that company and your understanding of, of what the current situation is. And so I don't know. I, I, yeah. Curious of what to hear what your portfolio looks like in terms of distribution and holdings. Uh, Christian, thank you for this. I mean, honestly, I, I'm going to make a whole new video uh, about my portfolio. That's a great call because maybe that'll be the next hyper scheme. But yeah, I just need to make a whole video about it. Tesla still by far my biggest holding. Um, I mean, I'm basically getting a, a massive amount of leverage, even though I said I hated leverage earlier, without levering myself up or getting into debt by doing startup deals through HyperGwap. And so I'm making large sort of bets there um, when it's all said and done, if you look at my exposure. And so that's something I can talk about um, in the next thing. But really just, you know, Tesla... SpaceX, Bitcoin, Ethereum. Those are the things I'm really excited about right now. I did just buy a little Airbnb stock, but that's super tiny amount. I bought a even really micro bit of Dogecoin, which people are hating on me on. But anyway, that's what it is. But I'll make a whole video about that. Um, do you think a $5 trillion company by 2030 is insane for Tesla? Like no company's worth $5 trillion. Curtis asking this? Yes. Um, I think this is totally possible. I think we're going to have multiple $5 trillion companies in the year 2030. A, because of this inflation thing I'm talking about. But B, because um, I just think Tesla is reinventing, you know, think about the largest companies in the world. They're all oil companies. And think about how big car companies are too. Tesla's oil companies and car companies in one. So you think about the value, the market cap, auto suppliers as well, um, you know, taxi services as well, Uber as well. Um, so when you think about utilities, when you think about all of the different market caps of the industries Tesla's eating, I think this is huge. And then you count with, with the fiat dilution rate, that's almost like a, uh, you know, con like a extra little bit on the CAGR there. Um, I think five trillion is easily going to happen, honestly. And so if Tesla stays on their path and keeps executing, like it's not a sure thing, but 
I definitely think Tesla's going to hit $5 trillion, and that's why I still hold that as my biggest position. Um, and I think it'll happen before 2030, hopefully, maybe like 2027. Um, reflections on the first hyperchange NFT. Oh, I mean, I mean, shout out to West Coast Bill for, for getting it. I mean, I had a ton of fun with it. I'm actually working on this really new dope scheme. I almost don't want to say it, of how to bring this model of paying artists royalties on future sales beyond NFTs into real world art, which I think has the potential to like change how all of art and paintings are sold forever. And I'm actually, and I like, and I'm, I don't even want to say too much about it, but I'm so excited about that. And so, yeah, and it's dope. And I think um, I've been watching with what Gary Vee's doing with NFTs. I think that is genius. I think that is a, one of the dopest, coolest things happening on the ETH blockchain right now. And that's something I'm paying a lot of attention to. And I'm sort of waiting for the next big innovation um, in the NFT space. Do I think Tesla will offer any new models with Giga Texas or Giga Berlin? Not in the meantime, you know, you, you, this guy mentions the uh, uh, Brady, the suspension, air suspension model X, a little more off-roading or air suspension model Y, a little more off-roading. That would be dope. Um, I actually would love that car unless the range got hit too much. But um, I don't know. I think, frankly, Tesla, and this is what I say about V9, this is what I would say about the Plaid, about the 4680s, that Tesla's just overwhelmed right now. Like, they literally, like, I just think they're behind on, like, everything. Like, Tesla's always behind. That's their company culture because they're moving so fast. And I think that's the state status quo with everything. Like, I don't think they have enough time to focus on new models coming out of Berlin or Texas yet, but that's definitely on the roadmap. But like, let's just let them get the Model Y in Berlin with the 4680s. Let's let them get the Cybertruck off the ground before worrying about, about new things. And that's why, like, honestly, I've been covering Tesla a little less on my channel because I just think as much as people try and force Tesla news, like there isn't that much Tesla news. Like we know the Cybertruck, we know the new Model Y, we know Berlin, we know Austin, we know Shanghai is doing its thing. Maybe Model 2 is going to come out eventually, but still too early. You know, the semi trucks still getting off the ground. Uh, you know, V9, we're just waiting on that to come out. Like I, the Plaid, okay, it's here, the Yoke Stope. Like there hasn't been a huge new piece of structural news to change the thesis. Um, I think the biggest thing I'm watching for right now is FSD version 9 because that and this robo-taxi idea is what a lot of the stock market is expecting to drive massive earnings and revenue growth in the next few years. And so seeing, you know, whether Tesla's trajectory of that technology development and the market's expectations are in line is going to be really interesting. And I think that's dictating the stock right now. Um, Paul, with a bunch of questions, why did I sell uh, Spotify for Airbnb? Um, I don't know. And those are still two like my favorite stocks, but I just think Airbnb, like the timing right now is insane with travel coming back. And I think the market just doesn't get it. Um, but I think Spotify is dope. And I, so I had the moonshot of the Joe Rogan Spotify thing. Like I said, they should buy Joe Rogan experience and then they did. And it's actually, I'm kind of beefing with it as a Joe Rogan fan because on my TV, I'm looking at right behind you. Like I tried to pull up the Dave, Joe Rogan, Dave Chappelle, and it couldn't, I couldn't watch it. I could only listen because my thing's not supported. And so I think YouTube is actually the world's largest audio platform, not Spotify. And that is hurting uh, Joe Rogan, even though maybe he says his viewer numbers are going up. He says this, I think Joe Rogan actually got less relevant when he went on Spotify. And I'm going to say I'm guilty on that because I, I pitched that move or was, was a big fan of it. Um, but yeah, I actually think that they overpaid for it and that the, here's here's the thing. They just paid 60 million for the Call Her Daddy podcast. You're going to pay this much for a podcaster in their prime. The discounted cash flow model, the expectation when you're paying those hundreds of millions or 50 million for that podcast is it retains its current level of viewership. I think there could be a major flaw in the understanding of Spotify that, you know, these podcasters that are red hot right now, two years later, aren't hot, but you just bought them with a 10-year expected earnings life cycle. That's going to get you into trouble unless the bump in users that you get from initially signing them on retain and the lifetime value of those users actually pays you back for that content investment. I don't know, but I'm actually not convinced on the model after it's happened. I think it hasn't gone as well as expected. So that is maybe part of my reason about selling Spotify stock. Pop, top, okay. What are my top five public stock wish lists if I had funds available and would I consider them at the right valuation? I mean, 
my favorite companies right now, I mean, Tesla, my five favorite stocks. Okay, I'm just trying to go, okay. Tesla, Airbnb, Spotify, Square, Peloton. Um, I love them all because I think they're super early in their business model. I think they have amazing founders. I think they have amazing technology that makes the world better. Um, I love those companies. And I think those are like the best in breed technology equity stocks in the public sort of big cap space that I'm looking at right now. Um, favorite metric I use, financial metric. Um, yeah, favorite financial metric. This is kind of a trick question. I was going to say like price revenue because I think that's the best mathematical metric um, because revenue is the value that you provide to your customers. Shout out to Mo for telling me that. But I think the other thing I would say is um, give a shit factor by CEO. And I know that's a really like weird thing to say, but that is genuinely my biggest metric for any company. How much does the CEO care? How smart is he and how invested is he in this company's success and how much of his life depends on it? And Frank, and how motivated is he? How much, how many shits does he give about his own company and his role at it and the mission um, and the business? And that I think is it, you studying that will, will outweigh any financial statement, will outweigh any blog you could read, will outread any sub stack you could read. It's, it's really getting to know the CEO and their motivations and their incentives. And that is the best homework you can do. And that is my favorite metric. And that's why when I say, you know, Square, Peloton, Spotify, Tesla, um, I already forgot that Airbnb is my favorite companies. You're looking at Brian Chesky, Jack Dorsey, Elon Musk, Daniel Ek. Um, you know, those are the, the, the CEOs. Uh, John Foley, I think, is the CEO of Peloton. So I literally know all those companies. The number one reason I like all of them is because of the CEO. I think they are, you know, that that's the whole reason. So um, I think that's, and that's when you think about alpha in an area of research that not a lot of other people are researching, I think you spending time on the CEO is something not enough people are spending time on, especially with look, dive, dive into their comp package, dive into what they did previously in their career. Um, I just think there's so much insight there that people sort of leave on the table. Back in the early days when you were first investing in Tesla, before the stock blew up um, and played a bigger role in building conviction, um, was it quantitative data, delivery numbers, revenue, margins, or profits, or qualitative data, Elon's involvement in product superiority, disruptive technology, customer fan base? Was it a balancing act between qualitative, quantitative, or did you more rely on one? I ask about Tesla specifically, but the concept applies to all companies you look at. Appreciate the insight you can share. Okay, Mark, excellent question. This is kind of what I was just saying before about the CEOs and, and reading into them, but Tesla, the big thing that led me to Tesla, and I don't know if this will um, help you that much because I think it was a little moment in time, was tracking social media data. This is like a project I was doing at NYU, like in 2012, was tracking the rate of growth of Tesla's Facebook page relative to the Facebook pages of every other auto brand um, and taking into account the fact that engagement per post was sort of a proxy for how much of the reach on that page was organic versus paid. And so you could see that Tesla was building up a fan base the size of Mercedes, except Tesla was a brand new company, and they were, but there were more people commenting on it. They only sell one one thousandth of the cars in Mercedes. They have just as many fans. I mean, this was the data to me that was pounding the table of like, you're looking in the rear view mirror by financials. Financial analysis is in the rear view mirror. Looking at social media data is looking five years ahead at what the purchases will be. All those likes on the Facebook page and comments about how dope Tesla was, that was the customer today in 2021 that built this $500 billion company that was already there on Facebook eight years ago. And so I think there was a huge disconnect there. And I think by being forward thinking and using social media data and anecdotes and real world research that was in real time, um, not looking at financials was a huge advantage. And I still think is a huge advantage. I think internet metadata, you know, the Tesla Reddit forum, all of this stuff is a huge opportunity 
continuing to get alpha. And I think this, this is a broader theme that the internet has democratized access to information. And this is a huge opportunity for individual investors. And this is why Tesla, which was able to spread information through YouTube and the internet and Twitter without zero marketing, uh, was almost like a gift to the people. Wall Street didn't get it, but all these other people did. And that was because of the democratization of the internet and, and financial research and all this data. And so um, I still think that financial social media data and internet metadata is probably a huge source of alpha. And just this idea that, um, you know, uh, people's love for a product or service will be way ahead of the financials. And so I think that that's when I think about Tesla, it was like everybody who had the car fell in love with it. Like this is they would never go back. This is a change their life. They couldn't stop gushing about it. Like that's what when you see that about a product like that, that's a that's a connection with the company. They're, they want to buy the next thing from Tesla that doesn't even exist yet, but they already want it. That's nowhere in the financial statements. You know, there's there's so many intangible things that um, I think the Wall Street financial world has yet to just appreciate because they can't put a number on on them, but are the je ne sais quoi of massive alpha. And so if you can get that zealous fan base that is obsessed with your product that follows your every single move, they called Tesla a cult for so long. Guess the other company that was a cult, Apple. If you can build a cult, that just means you're an incredible brand. That's a sign of winning. That's not a sign of losing. That's a sign of an amazing product or service that gets people hyped. Like I even say sometimes like Tesla is like my religion because I bond with people in the Tesla community, even though I don't even know them because I know we love Tesla and I know how many of, much of our values are aligned. I know that they accept new technology, that they're in it for a better future, that they're sort of like, you know, looking out for not just themselves, that they take risks, they take chances, they like, you know, have this optimistic sort of naivety, but also like curiosity about the future and 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 want to be inspired by this vision that we could live in a sort of better future and we're all building it and all like, I don't know, I, I'm get, getting carried away there, but I think those were the things that people would laugh at, for, uh, at me for talking about. 10 years ago about Tesla, but in retrospect were the clues that led me to investing in it and, and were really a precursor of how you could see they were going to change the world because you saw how they were changing lives one at a time. And they just had to keep changing those lives and bringing the cost down on their product and spreading it around the world. So um, I don't know, that's that's kind of, especially when I'm investing in startups and angel investing now, like the big thing that I look for is that love of the product. Is the product market fit there? Is your biggest problem that more and more people want to use your thing, but they just can't yet because you can't build enough of them or they're waiting for this new feature or like is that your biggest problem if so you're on to something i love that and so that that's the lens that i would look at um and other companies that's like airbnb right now i'm so excited about them their biggest problem is they need more hosts on the platform because so many people want to use their thing and travel um and they need more people doing experiences like they need more because the demand is there uh for what they're doing and so okay we got some i'm going through the questions now we got another question about tesla stock where do you see tesla by the end of 21 by the end of 22 i don't know so I'm going to keep saying that. I'm probably going to stop answering questions like that. But I just think it's really important for people to not pretend that anybody can predict stock prices. Like literally nobody knows where any stock is going to be in the future. And if they do, then they would be a gazillionaire. And so, you know, your homie who's like, oh, I think Tesla's going to be at like 850 in three months because, yeah, like he's an idiot and he's just saying like literal bullshit. Like that means nothing. Like nobody knows. Like I could tell you, I think Tesla stock's going to be at 900, but I don't know. I'd be lying. And so I just think this entire mentality that people can know exactly what price a stock's going to be at in the future is just like the definition of the insanity in the markets. And so I, that's why I'm having this rant right now, because I want to like implore you to like, it doesn't like do your research on what the company's worth. It shouldn't be, what does, should the stock be at in 2022? It should be, what is the intrinsic value of this core business? in 2022 priced in Bitcoin, ETH, and US dollars or real estate. 
You know, what is the, is that up or down? Why is the intrinsic value that? Which projects are leading to that intrinsic value? Which piece of the vertical stack of the business model is adding the most alpha to that situation? Is that improving or, you know, is that what's the pace of innovation? Like, look at the business. There's a business behind every stock and you should be studying the business, not the stock. So anyway, next question is who sets expectation in the market? There's another one here. I'm just, I'm just knocking these all out. When does Tesla fall slightly short of expect those expectations? The stock doesn't either move or goes down. Is there a gold standard for expectations? Thanks, Ken. Yes, there is. Tesla's valued at almost as much as every other car company combined. This is a company with $48 billion annual revenue run rate valued at $650, $700 billion. I mean, that is pricing in an insane amount of growth. Some would call it price to perfection. So this is where you know, it's frustrating. Like everyone's like, I'll be on a live stream. Tesla announces an amazing quarter. They pumped out a billion dollars in profit, but everybody's like, oh my God, the stock's down 1%. This sucks. This is the worst day ever. It's like the stock has gone up so much. You know, I, you have to think about what price you're buying it. There's so much priced into Tesla right now that they actually have a year or two of executing. They got to get this FSD progress going or the stock's not going to go anywhere because it's going to take them way too long to backfill into these earnings. So it's a very complex question, but I think um, the bottom line is when you have a stock that's gone up 20X in the past couple years, but the revenue hasn't gone up 20X, the market is expecting a lot and they need to backfill into that growth. And um, it's just going to take a while for them to backfill into that growth. You know, I thought Tesla stock was ridiculously undervalued for four years in a row. I was pounding the table making YouTube videos about it and nobody cared and I just kept seeing the intrinsic value going up but the stock price staying flat and eventually the, the the stock price catches up to the intrinsic value and frankly now the stock price is way here it's way higher than the intrinsic value and and so the stock the intrinsic value is going to have to catch up to the stock price and unless we see an acceleration in the in the trajectory of that intrinsic value i don't think the stock price will increase and the only way we're going to see an acceleration in the intrinsic value from a material standpoint from the earnings of tesla is if fsd rolls out and it starts making guap asap and if that happens then i think we have significant upside in the near term of tesla stock otherwise i think you're flat for a while as they build in this scaling you know hardware ev manufacturing business inch by inch towards 100 billion in revenue which when they hit i think we're worth 1 to 1.5 trillion without the software game. So that's a double from today. Maybe that takes three years. Maybe that's a 25% CAGR. That's all good. And then you have the option of FSD. So I think Tesla has gone from this exciting 10, 20, 30 bagger to a solid big cap tech stock, potentially returning 20 to 30% and protecting your wealth in the awakening era with the optionality of the robo taxi network taking off and you have making way more money. But I like to frame it like that, even though you might be like, Gally, the robo taxi network taking off is inevitable, Gally. How are you even saying that's just an option? Because financially from a risk adjusted standpoint, like I haven't been in a, I haven't had the Tesla network app and called the ride and have it been dope. Like it, it's not out yet. You know, like I don't want to just say it's going to happen when it hasn't. There's still a lot of challenges, government regulations, tech improvements to get there. And so, um, yeah, so that's my rant about, about Tesla and, and the valuation now. I mean, it's, I think, um, and when you think about you know, this, this FSD thing is so out there. Like no company has ever done something this ambitious and this crazy and had potentially this big of a financial impact. So I think part of what's happening here is Tesla stocks soaring based on the potential of this, but also some people freaking out about it of like, what is actually going to happen here? Like th this is just so new and revolutionary. On one hand, ARK saying it's worth trillions of dollars. On the other hand, it's generating zero revenue today. On the other hand, Tesla's about to raise their FSD prices in a bit, in a huge way. So is, are they already monetizing? Like, um, I don't know. I just think this is an epic business case study. Um, yeah. And so, all right, I'll leave it there. 
uh, this is the hyper scheme. I hope y'all liked it. Honestly, I had a ton of fun and I can't wait to do this um, next week. I'm gonna drop one on Sunday. So definitely stay tuned for that. And yeah, hit me up. Let me know what you think in the comments below. Like, I feel like this should be like our Sunday scheme. Like every Sunday morning, the hyper scheme comes out. We can be scheming patrons. You can hit me up with all the questions and topics you want to cover. And I'll also just throw in um, all the stuff I'm thinking about. But anyway, love y'all. Thank you so much. Have an epic day. See y'all next time.